in the beginning I gave you cosmology of mantra science and we studied the order of expression and the different aspects of mantra science as it was revealed as Shristi Rahasya, the secret of creation. That is, we saw that cosmic sound is the conscious side of reality. We saw that mantra is based on the garland of alphabets or sound symbols and words, their meanings. And we saw that these were based on Bindu, Nada, and Bija. And we then discussed how first there's Mahapralaya, this great dissolution of everything. And then consciousness is present in its two forms and dynamic power approaches absolute reality. There's a desire to create. The bindu is formed. That is a space where there can be creation. And in that creation, there's the meeting of the static and the dynamic. And that meeting causes this explosion and this sound. And from that, all tattvas come in order. That's where you get back to the 24 cosmic principles from cosmic mind on down to the five elements. Everything comes in an order of expression. Now, that should all be in your notes because it was on the board. So now, as we were talking about a week ago in Portland, Oregon, at SRV, Oregon, we need to look deeper into the idea of this principle of mantra. So there are facts about the mantra you can see here. I'm not rendering it into Sanskrit for you. It's just going to be in English, so you can note these down. Facts about the mantra. First of all, mantra is the science of cosmic sound or spontaneous vibration. That is, no one sounds it voluntarily, nor can anyone prevent it from being sounded. It's the deity in your heart, that abiding in your heart, that sounds it spontaneously. It's like a vibration that's always happening. And it's, of course, extremely subtle, and everything receives its vibration from that primal vibration. So mantra itself is the science of this cosmic sound or spontaneous vibration. If you see it like science has seen that everything is vibrating at different levels, then you'd come to some awareness of what the secret of creation is. It's all based on that in the beginning was the word. In other words, there's vibration. And this vibration starts very subtly and then gets more apparent and more gross until it's vibrating very slow. When it's vibrating very slow, you have the worlds, the universe. That is, you can even measure vibrations of things with instruments. Rocks, stones, solid earth vibrating at the lowest rate of vibration. So to know this is to know the secret of creation by following it back to the subtlest vibration. Second fact is that this mantra science owes its origin to the Vedas, the Tantra and the Vedas, and those Tantric adepts and Vedic rishis of many thousand years ago had realized this in their meditation. They had, they had uh, traced the vibration. Like Sri Ramakrishna said, if you hear the ocean, you go towards it. You hear the sound first, and then you go towards it over sand dunes, and finally you get to the ocean and see it there in all its glory. So they had heard the divine sound or the primal vibration in their inner meditations and they had gone forth towards it and merged themselves in it. As we were just saying, laya, chintaya, they merged the physical universe, they, they merged the mind, they merged their sense of separate self even, 
In other words, they gave up even who I am, my individual existence. They had to do that in order to get off the mind and merge themselves in this absolute reality. So if they knew that there was this primal vibration called Om, then they could retreat from the physical universe, they could merge the physical body, like melting an ice cube in water, or a hailstone melting in an ocean, Shankara says. And they could trace themselves back uh, following the sound, the Shabda Brahman it's called, or the sound of Om. And then they could uh, merge the mind. When they merged the mind, they would have to merge uh, four things. The penchant of the mind to perceive duality, or multiplicity. In other words, they would have to have mastered what Patanjali in his yoga sutras called pratyahara. You see, that's where the Western culture falls off. They, they can't withdraw the mind from the senses. They can do various postures. They can huff and puff their lungs. But they can't withdraw their mind from the objects in meditation and dissolve the universe of space and time. In order to do that, you'd have to reduce the mind's penchant to perceive duality everywhere or to obsess with multiplicity. And then, finally, you would have to hone the intellect to such a degree by meditation on subtle truths that it became like a clear lake instead of a rippled surface where one sun reflects in a million ways. Clarify the intellect so that it's one surface without any ripples and the one sun could be reflected in there. And therefore, in the booty or in the intelligence of the human being, if the penchant for perceiving duality and for thinking is transformed, transcended, then the booty or the intelligence becomes like a clear surface. There you see the Atman reflected. <coughs> it's not in the intellect because Atman or reality isn't a physical thing and it isn't a thing that thinks. God doesn't act or think. The mind does all that and nature does all that. So on that surface of the booty, you would see the reflection of the Atman. And then, seeing the reflection, you could, as it were, follow the reflection back to its source. You could make the connection between the Atman reflecting in you and Brahman, the true reality from which Atman emerges. That's the second thing you'd have to accomplish. third thing you'd have to accomplish would be to make the chitta, or the thoughts, buoyant. The human thought, Sri Ramakrishna said, is like rainwater, it falls to the lowest place. But if you make it a hot air balloon, then it'll rise. So get rid of the sandbags, and the hot air balloon rises. So sandbags of attachment to name, fame, gain, and other quotidian or uh, conventional things must be cast off. So the mind can rise naturally, because the mind is naturally radiant when it's left in its original condition but it becomes heavy with the worldly considerations. And the fourth thing you'd have to do would be to reduce the ego to its smallest common denominator. Ego is like a balloon blown up in this room. You try and pass through the door, you can't get in, but inside the room is all empty. So you'd have to deflate that ego so that Brahman could come into that room. Or ego is like an onion, just no substance and all peelings. And if you take those peelings off, it makes you cry. So in that way, that's how to accomplish 
antakarna laya chintaya dhyan, the merging of the mind into Brahman. So mantra, as espoused by the tantric adepts and by the Vedic rishis, is best expressed and its origin is traced to the Vedas and Upanishads. That's the second fact of these 13 points. The third fact is that mantra is a unique spiritual practice. You can't find any other practice that is as effective as mantra. That is, if your mind is restless, then both the yoga of Vedic culture and Buddhism prescribe breathing exercises. And that's one way to calm the heart rate, which then calms the mind, which then allows you to get a little freedom from worldly concerns and hopefully get a deep meditation out of it. But that's often done, if it's obsessive, it's often done at the risk of imbalancing the mind or what Holy Mother called heating the brain. Many people, by uh, doing too much asana and pranayama, have run that risk and had that danger. So the college students came to Rakal, Swami Brahmananda, and said, should we do asana and pranayama? He said, no, do, do mantra, recitation of mantra, because that will affect naturally the peace and calm of the mind without all the dangers. So mantra is a universal practice, and that's the fourth point. It's a universal sadhana, spiritual discipline, for the practice of all qualified aspirants. I say qualified because there will be many who aren't ready for it. Therefore, they will have to uh, revert to what might be called inferior forms of spiritual practice or preparatory or even residual forms of spiritual practice. But when a qualified aspirant meets an illumined preceptor, the mantra is transmitted either by a mantra guru, by a, by a shakta guru, or a shambhavi guru. And then the mantra itself and the uh, transmission of that mantra equals enlightenment. The minute you receive the mantra, you're enlightened, but the mind doesn't know it yet. Using the mantra over and over again, then enlightenment will dawn on the mind in stages. As the mind breaks down its conventional barriers and learns how to offer itself to the divine, to put it in devotional language. So this mantra is a unique as a spiritual practice, and it's a universal means for sadhana, for qualified aspirants. That's point three and four. Point five is that mantra comes out of mental repetition. Mantra, mananata. That is, like the repetition of certain vibratory sounds that sort of uh, calm the mind, like music you're listening to, and you hear the refrain over and over again. Mantra has the ability to lull or hypnotize maya. See, And so it will recede and fall away. And therefore, you have to repeat it over and over again. But remember the parrot, if you teach the parrot the mantra, It'll say it more times than you can a day, but when the cat gets it, it forgets the mantra and just goes back to its primal squawk. You see, its primal squawk at the time of death. So, mantra done with consciousness, as we were discussing yesterday, knowing the four sides of mantra, 
the first quarter is given to you at time of initiation, then you have to uncover the three hidden sides of, of Divine Mother. She's the mother of all mantra. Gayatri, she's called. Or Saraswati, or Umavati. She's the intelligence in the word. She's the progenitress of the primal sound. She also controls the hand, the prestidigitation of the hand of Maya. She controls Maya. So if you were to find the the gardener, he'll tell you which is the best garden. You see, otherwise you run around looking and you'll never find it. So mental repetition, in accordance with knowing the meaning of the mantra, and knowing the presiding deity of the mantra. In this case, Sri Ramakrishna. If you have a Ramakrishna mantra, then that connects you up with reality. It's like a conduit, a direct connection. So make this mental repetition not boring, because mantra can be as dull as digging the dry earth with a spade, Holy Mother said. But you have to infuse it. It's like ground you have to water with the tears of your devotion and fertilize it with your ruminations, meditations, lucubrations on divine reality. That's number five, correct? Sixth point about mantra is that it does not come from a sense mind or from the rational mind. It comes from the bodhi mind called bodhamanaha. That is, if you realize that mantra comes from the Divine Mother of the Universe, that all sounds are there in her, and the intelligence itself is present in every syllable, and every letter is infused and impacted with that Mother Wisdom, Mother Intelligence, then you have the key to the origin of mantra. It comes from the intelligent side of reality, not from the sense bound side or even the rational mind, the analytical mind. Because analytical mind and intellectual mind doesn't see the efficacy of reciting mantra. So you can't tell an intellectual, here, recite this and this will do something for you. It has to come more from the conscious side of the intelligence, not from the commonplace side. Next point is that when taken to the highest point, mantra grants you the knowledge that the universe is not separate from Brahman, that the universe is just an overflow of the bliss of Brahman, as the rishis of the Upanishads stated. The universe is just an overflow of the bliss of Brahman. So if that's true, then we're experiencing the overflow of that bliss, but there must be some receptacle from which it's overflowing from. So mantra can take you back to that source by concentrating on it repeating it in, in the depth of your meditations. Next point is that mantra grants protection from dangers while you practice your sadhana. Now this is an important point because when you're practicing sadhana you have three dangers. <clears throat> As they say, adi baudika, adi daivaka, adi yatama. That is, Dangers coming from outside of you, dangers coming from within inside your own mind, and dangers from on high are the cosmic powers that like to keep you in the universe. The Vedantist, or the self-realized person, the luminary, the enlightened being, wants to get beyond the universe, wants to realize their source of origin. 
and no celestial power can stop them. But they'll still try. That is, you know yourself as devotees of SRV and students that when you start to practice spirituality, parents and friends will come forward and tell you not to do that because misery loves company. People like to stay in the world. Misery here means pleasure. Pleasure is a kind of misery. It brings karma. It's a gold chain, whereas suffering is an iron chain. So if you want to get beyond all fetters and be truly free, then you snap the gold chain of good and you break the iron chain of negativity. So those people who start to practice sadhana will notice that family and friends and the world in general rises up to stop you from making your way towards freedom. So that's the danger from outside. In fact, Sri Ramakrishna said, the world is a huge pit and your friends and family are vipers inside. He was that blunt, frank about it. Of course, dharmic family is something else. That is, he says, you must serve your parents if they don't stand in the way of you realizing your true nature. You must serve them as gods and goddesses. But if they stand in the way of their uh, ignorant people, then you must go your own way. Then uh, mantra will help protect you from that danger, that is, keep you focused. In the same way, dangers coming from inside of the mind rise up when you do mantra because the divine name of the Lord purifies the subconscious. And when the subconscious mind is purified, negativities will start rising to the surface. Now, this happens in the world anyway. You come in certain contact with certain people in certain situations that prick those negative samskaras in you, which are there from past lifetimes. And therefore, you wonder why I'm going through this and so forth, because your karma has brought you there. But it's better to have these negativities come up in the sunlight of guru, dharma, and sangha in the practice of mantra, because if they come up then, they'll get lanced like a boil. If you have a boil, then you go to a doctor and say, oh no, it's not time yet, it's too hard. Come back in a few days. So he watches it for a while. Then when the thing is ready, soft, and it has all that poison near the surface, then he lances it, a depth surgeon, and then all the poison is gone and it heals. So there's a certain time mantra will bring these up in the light of guru, dharma, and sangha, and those will get lanced and will never return again. But if they come up in the periphery of family, friends, and worldliness, then they come up, they disturb the atmosphere, and then they retreat back, and then they come up again later. And if you're trying to practice meditation, they'll come up at the worst possible times. You've practiced for five, ten years, 365 days a year times two. You've meditated two hours each day, that's, uh, what, 730 meditations you've had this year. Of those 730 meditations, you may have two dozen that you feel really good about. Something that reflected the truth of your existence came through that meditation. So you have to keep doing them no matter what because you would have missed those 24 opportunities if you hadn't have remained constant. But if you do the mantra constantly, as these negativities get caught up in the mind, they get purified, they get lanced again, and then they go away, and the mind becomes pure and purer, until pure mind is all that's left, and that equals divine reality. 
pure mind is God, Sri Ramakrishna said, or Buddha mind is Buddha nature, as Lord Buddha said. Then mantra will also save you from the influence of cosmic powers. You see, higher powers, higher meaning, not higher in stature, but higher in the gradation of worlds. See, the, the, uh, the lokas, the different life heavens. That is, here on earth, a man, a transmigrating soul, has the polar opposites acting on him. Between two forces, a diamond is ground. See, a diamond comes the heart of substance by the interaction of opposing forces on it. So, this earth is a good place, then, a balance of good and bad, wherein to realize your true nature. So, you can transcend the station of gods and goddesses, you see, or cosmic powers. And mantra helps you do that because you plug into a certain sound, a certain bija, that's connected to a certain deity, and that deity presides over a certain cross-section of the lokas. In the case of Shakti Mantra, Divine Mother Mantra, it works on all levels. Sri Ramakrishna said, for instance, you had a coin that was very ancient, and you walked into, say, a convenience store, and you try and buy something with it, and it's not going to work. It's not valid coinage. It's not going to be worth anything in modern times. So in that same way, certain mantras aren't worth anything on certain levels. But Shakti Mantra, Divine Mother Mantra, is valid throughout the creation. That is, every cosmic power will recognize it. Because Divine Mother herself created the Lokas, she's the Mahashakti, she's the Mahamaya, she's the Great Enchantress, she's the primogenitress of all creation. Death is one of her functions. Yama, the God of Death, obeys her commands. She even dances on the breast of Shiva. Absolute reality is totally enamored with this Mother Kali. So that's why Sri Ramakrishna said, propitiate the divine Shakti if you want freedom from this world of name and form, if you're seeking freedom. So Shakti Mantra then, you can see how that could protect you while you're doing your sadhana from various influences on high. And it'll also then protect you from mental dangers that come up while you're practicing. Your mind might say, oh, my teacher gave me this mantra and it's having a negative effect. So I'm going to quit. But the negative effect is exactly what you want. <coughs> you want these things to come up, get exposed to the light, get disintegrated and done away with. You're not going to have to deal with them again in future existences. It's like going to the dentist and getting the, the toothache over with. You see? And then, then you won't have to experience it again in the future. So many karmas that would fructify down the line get attenuated or annihilated even. And you won't even have to take on more bodies because your body right now is a result of your past karma. The body that you, that you have right now. So those three levels, outer, inner, and transcendent, you're protected from those powers by mantra. So I've taken extra time on that point because I feel it's very important to note. We'll finish these 13 points up and have a break. And right now, we are on 9, correct? 
And of course, we can go through these quick because in the extra time I took, I really jumped the gun and started explaining the next two, the number nine, which means mantra cleans the subconscious mind of detrimental mental impressions. It cleans the subconscious mind out. Why is that? How is that? You've been watering the weeds instead of the flowers. That is, brooding mind thinks day after day, hour after hour, on all these commonplace, conventional, or even detrimental or evil thoughts, or fears, or concerns, or confusions. Mind spends all its energy doing that. Now, if you can, through the mantra, think about the divine for a while, you water the flowers, and the weeds go away. If you have a cave that's dark, and it's been dark for a thousand years, and the explorer walks in with a torch, how long does it take for the darkness to go away? A thousand years? No. Darkness has no resistance. There is no incarnate evil here in the universe. There's no God and there's no devil here. There's just you. There's just the great self. When you realize your connection with the great self, which is pure conscious awareness itself, then you render all such superstitions invalid and ineffective to harm you. And you become self-realized. That was one of Swami Vivekananda's radical and powerful statements. There is no God, there is no devil, there is just the great self. Call that great self God if you want. Call him devil if you want too, because many negativities come about which are beneficial. People were talking about how much they hated Mao Zedong because of Tibet. But because of Tibet, we have Buddha Dharma in the United States everywhere all around this western culture has been saturated by buddha dharma so what a, a great thing came out of a negative occurrence so have to learn to witness these things not to mean that you shouldn't work for justice and so forth but to work in a detached fashion and realize that there's a higher power working here that the world is a place of positive and negative happenings and we just need to discern and discriminate that is, grant unto Caesar what is Caesar's, take unto yourself what is the Lord's, was the way Jesus put it. So we were saying that subconscious mind gets cleaned of mental impressions by the mantra. Focus will keep you away from the dangers of the many weeds growing in the subconscious mind. They start to die because you're not giving them attention anymore. You're putting your attention on this reality. And you, you refuse to be distracted. I'm going to focus on my mantra in accordance with my deity, my chosen ideal. And I'm going to make this a practice day to day. And even when I'm not sitting formally in meditation, the mantra will still be bubbling in my mind, you see, doing its work. And if I keep this up for one, two, three, four, five years, these weeds die. And I'm rendering my karma ineffective to harm me anymore. And I'm also, what to speak of canceling out negativities, now a whole bunch of positivities are coming forth. All these divine potentials in me that are stored there in my mind, the positive some scars, are now having a chance to show themselves. They're coming forth, and then you have divine qualities like compassion or love or devotion or knowledge, uh, which are all there in the human psyche. Those things get a chance to come forth, so we must give them a chance. Next, one-fourth of the mantra given in initiation is called Vaikari. 
only one-fourth is given through your guru orally as you get initiation. The other three-fourths are the beautiful form of the mother herself, Tripura Sundari, the beautiful triple aspect of mother in her subtle form. You have to awaken those yourself. They're called hidden in the cave of the heart. So if you meditate on the mantra with the form of the divine being that you've chosen, then these other three-fourths of the mantra can manifest and express themselves. That was number 10. That was actually 10 and 11. That is, one-fourth of the mantra is given in traditional initiation called Vaikari, and number 11 means the other three-fourths are hidden in the cave of the heart. And they are Himavati, the beautiful form of the mother herself. Himavati is the oldest name for Divine Mother we know in the Rig Veda. They call her Himavati or Umavati, Mother of the Eternal Snow Mountains, Himalayas. So very ancient, also called Saraswati. And other beautiful names for her. Then number 12, that mantras are innumerable. And they're all associated with the different deities and their powers. Each mantra has its own deity, and each deity has its own power. So take that name and put one of these mantras or bijas in front of it, and you've got something very powerful. So always think about this if the mantra ever becomes monotonous, or if you fail to penetrate deeply or use it right, then you infuse it with those kinds of thoughts. Which is back to sukshmajan, your ability to meditate on subtle truths, right? that second stage of meditation we were talking about. If you have an ability to meditate on subtle truths, then you don't have to become in a hypnotic state around the mantra. You can, before you use it, say, what does this mean? And you can bring consciousness to bear. It means Ramakrishna. What does Ramakrishna mean? And then you think of all these inspiring things that you've read about his life and everything he symbolizes. Then you do the mantra, and the mantra is active, you see. It's bubbling up. It's causing you great joy. In fact, they say first the mantra acts as a protection against dangers. Later on, it scrubs the subconscious levels of the mind. It becomes scrubbing bubbles, you see, at the level of subconscious, unconscious. And finally, what does it become? A bubbling spring of ambrosia. You don't even have to try and repeat it anymore. It's just always going in your mind. And then you're a burning pillar of light. You reflect this and send this light, emanate this light to all sentient beings. Everywhere a person who's enlightened goes, the universe is affected in a positive way. And that brings me to the point of the second part of the class in mantra, is that first we should study the mother of mantras, Gayatri, the one name for her, or Mahashunya, the great emptiness, and this Mahashakti, this Mahamaya, this great mother that Krishna was so infatuated with and so much in love with, which he saw as one with Brahman, ultimate reality. And I haven't put it on the board, but it should be easy for your notes. First, she's Mahashunya, as I just said. Shunya means emptiness, Purna means fullness. In the case of this aspect of her, she's Maha, the great Shunya, emptiness. And she's realized in four ascending planes. Four ascending planes, that is Vaikari, Madhyama, Pashanti, and Para. That is, Vaikari, first, she's seen as the symbol 
or the object, the, the world of objects. That's one form. Her gross form, you might say. And then Madhyama, if you take apart the world of name and form, then you find a world of ideas behind it, of life force, of energy, that you can't see with the tactile senses. That's all obscured. That's a world of ideas, and beyond that is Pashanti, that is a world that even belies ideas but goes into the realm of subtle concepts, like atmosphere would be a good word. We call it akasha in Vedanta. There are different akashas. There's a space for objects. There's a space for prana, for life force. There's a space for thought. There's a space for intellect. And there's even a space for this consciousness, as it were, this higher consciousness. All of those are atmospheres. Yoga Vashishta describes him. Chittakasha, Chittakasha, Jnanakasha, the, the space of knowledge, and Pranakasha, the space of energy, and Bhutakasha, the space of objects or beings. This is what's meant by that. You can correlate that so that if you shut your eyes, you won't see objects anymore. And then if you shut off thought, you won't be thinking anymore, but you'll come to a space of consciousness that's aware of itself. And then you finally get to her own atmosphere, para. Vaikari, Madhyama, Pashanti, Para, that's no space. That's the great emptiness herself. Described in different ways by Rig Veda and by the New Testament as this blackness or this void before time began, that kind of idea. Or by the Mundaka Upanishad when it says, anterior to both life and mind was this great Atman. Anterior means before. So before life and mind before mind started to think and before objects came out of mind there was this great atman, this great emptiness because this is nothing but a thought all these objects are nothing but thoughts but they've solidified by the power of maya power of maya through the senses so the universe is nothing but a concept or a thought or as holy mother said thought made manifest or spirit concretized, you might say. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So this is how the process happens. So she's Mahashunya, realized by these four ascending stages. Secondly, she's Tripura Sundari. That is, she has three wondrous forms. The first is the image of the symbol. The second is the mantra. And the third is the supreme, which none can know. That is, the mind can't know it. The mind would have to dissolve in order to know that. Like, like a salt ball walking into an ocean. I'm going to measure the depths, it says. But no sooner does it get in that it dissolves. So who is there left to come out and say how deep it is? So that is this unknowable. That is unknowable by the mind, but pure knowledge itself which all beings have their origin from. It's the source of all existence. It is your true nature. That, in that way, they mean that. Third, she's Hardakala. Hardakala. That means she's full of grace, and this particularly means that she's boundless potential for expansion and contraction, ever-flowing in the Shishumna. Hardakala is the power of Kundalini Shakti that's ever flowing up and down in the Shishunna Canal. 
Ida Pingala and the Santa Maria. No. <laughs> Up and down these anterior canals. See, and the Shishumna being in the middle. So she is that power of Kundalini Shakti. Flowing in the Shishumna and descending in reverse motion. So that's her grace. And it, it's boundless potential for expansion and infinite potential itself. This is the mother of mantra we're talking about and the secret of creation, Shristi Rahasya. We have to talk about her first because there is the mantra and then there's its wielder or its knower. Uh, Shakti and Shaktiman, they call it. Shakti is the power, Shaktiman is the wielder, or the warrior and his weapon. A weapon can't do anything until the warrior picks it up. So there is an indescribable divine presence or entity in existence. In fact, it's the only thing in existence. All the rest is different expressions of that in subtler or grosser vibrational spheres. It's beautiful. It's, it's very tantric uh, in its description, no doubt. She's also Mukti Koivalya Nirvana. I couldn't think of another name for it. So I just put three of the most powerful terms for spiritual liberation or freedom together. Mukti, Nirvana, and Koivalya. That is used by Shankara, by the father of Yoga Patanjali, and by Lord Buddha, Nirvana. This is a, a formless reality of, of pure freedom. So if she's also pure intellect or pure intelligence, and is also formless, as we were just saying, consciousness doesn't need a station in which to express itself. All stations exist in it. What was it Plotinus said? The soul doesn't reside in the body. The body can't be a location. Because there, there is no location for consciousness. It's beyond space and time. So if we convert our thinking process, modify our thinking process to think in that way, then we start to give up the idea that there's an anthropomorphic God floating somewhere, whether it's on a cloud or in a life heaven. There are plenty of lesser gods to do that. <laughs> but this ultimate is something different. This is the divine subject or eternal subject of the Upanishads, where they described by the name Brahman. The, all the Upanishads are concentrated on that formless reality. You have plenty of other scriptures, both in Hinduism and Buddhism and in Christianity and Judaism and all sorts of other traditions of the world that concentrate quite a bit on God with form, which is real, too. But this formless reality, the Almighty Father in Heaven, that Jesus spoke about, is something other, something completely other. And back to the point, it has no position in time and space. It needs no place to rest. That is the sixth or seventh step of higher knowledge, according to the Father of Yoga that the individualized being, as it were, becomes so realized that they don't desire a place anymore to rest. Birds and foxes have that, but we have no place to lay our head. It means consciousness isn't in space and time, and it doesn't need any location in which to manifest. It is already. And in fact, everything else is manifesting in that. That's why Brahman, God, is not in the universe. The universe is in God. So that also takes our thinking process and modifies it in an Advaitic way, in a non-dual way rather than in a dual way where we're, we're seeing other, this and that or I and thou or God and man or, or, or nature and spirit or creature and creator it, it removes those lines of distinction 
So she's that mukti kaivalya nirvana. And it's a nice quote from the tantras. There is no liberation without worship of shakti. Shakti jnanam vina devi nirvana jayati. That's the Sanskrit for it. Vina Devi, who would that be? Saraswati. Saraswati, yeah, she's holding, she's holding the Vina. So Saraswati is the oldest name that we know for Divine Mother Reality in any scripture, historically speaking. That, In fact, they called her Himavat in the Rig Veda, uh, mother of the great snow mountains. She was born as Uma and Parvati. Saraswati is that ancient Vedic goddess, goddess of art and learning, and you notice she holds the Japa Mala in one hand and the holy book in the other. So there you have Mantra, Japa, and all the wisdom. She's the goddess of wisdom. She's the mother of the word. Vak Devi, mother of speech. Intelligence is in the speech. Objects are in the speech. Meaning is in the speech. It's a beautiful way of thinking in terms of that, because then you can make sense out of the universe. Shristi Rahasya, the secret of all creation, lies there. So I've given you five. The fifth being that there's no liberation without worship of Shakti. So Shakti Gyanam Vina Devi, Nirvana Jayati. You get the great boon of Nirvana by worshiping Shakti. So one man who had been to England came back to India and Sri Ramakrishna asked him, what did you see there? Oh, the English are very worldly. They're busy building battleships, and they're so industrious, and they're running around. And he went on and on, kind of criticizing him. And Sri Ramakrishna said, well, it sounds like they're worshippers of Shakti to me. Shakti is just power, see? And it's power to create dynamic power. Of course, to become conscious of her in her subtle form is a different thing. So sixth, she's... Ekananda Chirakritihi. Ekananda means the blissful one. Eka and Ananda. And Chirakritihi. Chid is pure consciousness. And when you see that word kriti or kr, the Sanskrit word for that, kriya, for instance, is this spontaneity is what I think of first. And then after that, secondary meanings of prana, movement, action, come in. Kriya is also breath. What animates the breath? Not just the breath itself, but what causes the voluntary inflow and outflow of the breathing. So all those meanings are there in the Sanskrit word, plus more. But in this rendering, we say she's the single supreme principle, ekananda, which is ever blissful and is the very essence of spontaneous wisdom. Chid kriti. A nice description for her in the tantras. Could you repeat that in English all the time? Single supreme principle, who is ever blissful, ekananda. Then, chitakriti, the very essence of spontaneous wisdom. And, and finally, she's Brahma Rupa. Nice name for her in the Srimad Devi Bhagavatam. Brahma Rupa means Rupa, the form of Brahman. It's the very form of Brahman. Brahman's very essence. So, Sri Ramakrishna put to death that age-old doubt for us when he said, Brahman and Shakti are just one. God and his power to create are like diamond and its luster, or perfume and its aroma. You can't separate them. Water and its wetness, too. You cannot separate them from each other. So, 
there again back to this idea of making my mind one-pointed. Don't let me fall into the delusion of seeing the many and forgetting the one. So here we, we come back to that with this idea of Brahma Rupa. She's that Brahman and Shakti are one thing. We sleep and we wake. Brahman too, on a cosmic level or a macrocosmic level, has its rest, its static equipoise, and it also has its dynamism, its activity. Don't confuse the two and, and separate them out. See them as one thing. In fact, that's the meaning of the very difficult sloka in the Bhagavad Gita. Those who see action and inaction and inaction and action, they truly know. So how do you see action and inaction and inaction and action? By living in this life, keeping your mind on that one principle, on her, say, Brahma Rupa, or on Ekananda, one bliss, oneness, then you act without acting. Isn't it true that the saints and sages don't accrue karma? like the rest of us. They're free of karma. A bondage of karma only comes when you're acting out of motive. Sakala, with intent or motive or desire. But if your actions are all totally free of motivation, with no goal in sight, with no desire, with no end, then you become free of karma. Nothing can find you. You're transparent. It's like wind hitting a window as compared to wind going through a screen. see, The ego has become transparent. So imperfections and impurities will collect here. I can see some. You might want to watch this. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding. But a screen, you see, pass right through. So the ego, in that transparent, turn the other cheek. That comes to mind. There's no ego to react to any violence. So, or, uh, I mean, if you want to put it on different levels. It's just this transparency. Ahimsa, non-violence, comes to mind when you, when you talk that. So these are some names for her and some of her properties as far as the tantras are concerned, which I gathered and thought were the most salient ones. There are others, of course, but these convey some sort of profundity of what we're talking about, Mahashunya and so forth, very high-minded ideas about these principles. So thank you very much for your kind attention. So let's end with a chant. Om Tachnayo Om Tachnayo Ravrini Mahe Gatum Yagyaya Gatum Yenupatae Daivi Svastarastu Naha Svastir Manuse Bhyaha Urdhvam Jigatu Pesajam Samnavastu Dvipade Samchatushpade Om Shanti 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 <coughs> May we always never offer everything into the Great Self. May we delight in this offering and revere the Mother and Lord of all sacrifice. May divine blessings be upon us. May peace be unto the entire human race. May well-being and prosperity also abide among us. Om peace, peace, peace. May peace be unto us and may peace be unto all. Om Hari 